grateful that you have given us your word. God, would you teach us even now how we can live according to your ways, how we can honor and glorify you with what we do, with what we think, with what we say. God, would you please change our hearts, transform us. Please fill us with the power of the Holy Spirit now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to read two statements that come from the same school in America. I want you to guess which school I'm talking about after I read them. The first is their motto, Truth for Christ and the Church. Second, from the same school, from their official rules and precepts. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. Who said that? It's Harvard. You got it. That was Harvard University. And I say was because it's changed now. It's, it's interesting. Their original motto was, you know, you know how it says truth now, a very toss with three books? Uh, it used to say truth for Christ and the church. And they used to implore their students to know Jesus Christ, to know that he is eternal life. But if you were to go to the Harvard webpage today and click on the About Harvard section, here's what you would read today. Harvard University is devoted to excellence in teaching, learning, and research, and to developing leaders in many disciplines who make a difference globally. It's a fine statement, I think, for a secular school. So I, I have... I, I'm not going to come... I don't want to come across today as anti-Harvard. That's not my point. But my point is to suggest to you that Harvard started on one path, a path about Jesus Christ, about truth, about eternal life, and now they're on a different path. It seems like a very academic path. Now, uh, colleges and universities don't go to heaven or to hell, so that's, that's not the issue here. And I'm not trying to suggest that somebody who goes to Harvard has made a wrong choice because God may very well lead people to go to Harvard and be a light shining there. But I would just like to suggest to you uh, as an illustration that Harvard started on one path and something happened so that they are now on a different path. The Bible often speaks of us, people who will spend eternity either with God or apart from God. The Bible speaks of us having two paths to consider as well. Now, we sometimes might like to think that there are many paths. We like to say life is an open book. Look at all the options that I have set before me. But let me explain it to you the way that the Bible explains it. One path is the path where we follow Christ, where we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, where we live for him and with him, where we do what we do because of who he is. We, we fix our eyes on Jesus. That's from Hebrews, but it's kind of been a, a verse that's been recurring to me as we go through this sermon series in the book of Revelation this fixing our eyes on Jesus. So that's one path. The other path would be where we take our eyes off of Jesus and we pick a different path. And maybe it's a path of pleasure. Maybe it's a path of self-will. We're making our own choices. Maybe we're trying to please other people. But the key thing about this path is that it's away from the path that God has for us. So there are two paths in life that we can take. In life that we can take. Now the problem is that sometimes... We Christians might like the idea of trying to walk both paths at the same time. I wonder if that's what happened at Harvard. I wonder if before they got on this path, 
if they thought, well, we'd like to do both. We want to honor Christ, but we also want to pursue academic excellence. Um, but I, I wonder if what happened is that the voices started to become louder on the other side and that they only became interested in academics and not in what they said earlier, focusing on Christ. Well, it looks like that's also kind of the thing that happened to the church in Pergamum in Revelation 2. We're studying the book of Revelation here at Cornerstone. We're going to spend most of the year doing it. We're in chapter 2 right now, and in chapters 2 through 3, it's the messages to the seven churches. Today, we're going to look at the message to the church in Pergamum. Next Sunday, we're going to look at the message to the church in Thyatira. And those two churches, to me, remind me a lot of America. So last Sunday, we looked at the church in Smyrna, and it reminded me almost nothing of the church in America. But today and next Sunday, the churches that we're going to look at remind me a lot of America. Uh, and remember, the messages that are written to the seven churches are, are for us. I've been saying it this way. To whatever degree you find yourself in these messages, you're supposed to listen and obey, because in each of the messages to the seven churches, it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So in many ways, these seven churches represent different scenarios that a church could potentially find themselves in. And like I said, the one today, as well as next Sunday, remind me a lot of America. So we really need to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church in Pergamum. Now, let's talk a little bit about America. I have had the opportunity to serve as a missionary in two countries overseas, and it's been fascinating to me what I've learned about America as I've traveled over there. Now, uh, on the one hand, a lot of people assumed that I was there to tell them about Jesus, because you know what? One thing that America has been really good at in the last, oh, couple hundred years is sending missionaries. So, there, in fact, there was one time I was in a closed country where, you know, it might have been illegal to share the gospel in, in some ways, and uh, I was sitting in an internet cafe, and a guy came up to me and said, I know what you're doing here. And I'm kind of like, oh, really? Uh, tell me, what, what is it that I'm doing here? He said, you're here to tell us about Jesus, aren't you? And I was kind of scared, like, oh, no, what's this guy going to do to me? And he said, I know, everybody knows what you're here to do. He said, it's okay with me, though, no worries. I actually had the privilege of, of leading that guy to Christ later on. Um, but um, we, as a, an, an, as a country, have another reputation as well, though. We have mass-produced and mass-exported our culture. Uh, and it's kind of funny, in one of those countries I was in, uh, they kept asking me about the Backstreet Boys. Like, sorry, I'm not a Backstreet Boy. Uh, no, I don't know all their names. I don't know them personally. I can't get you their autograph. I'm sorry. But, you know. um, and then in the other country that I was in, I, I learned more about American music my year that I was there than I did in like the previous 10 years of my life. Uh, yeah, I still have CDs that some of my friends made for me of American music. <laughs> Here, I want you to listen to this. Okay. Uh, and it isn't just music, it's movies too. And this was good and bad. Uh, on, the, on the good side, when I was in one of these closed countries, they allowed a movie in that was about the, the death of Jesus Christ. And I was able to take several friends of mine to that to help explain the gospel to them. But on the bad side, all our other movies went there as well. And uh, Hollywood has spoken very loudly to the world about who America is, and they get this impression of us, of, of who we are. And let me ask this question. Is it just the, the values of Hollywood that's the problem? All the filth that we see in a lot of our movies? Is it, is it just Hollywood that's pushing it on us? 
Or are they giving the American people what they want? I think it's a lot, that, that second direction. So who are we as a nation? Are we a Christian country? Or are we a secular, pleasure-seeking nation? Like I said, there are two paths, and too often we like to think that we can travel both of them at the same time. And there is a danger in the church in America, and a danger even in Cornerstone Church, that we would be tempted to try to follow both paths, or even tempted to turn our back on Jesus and walk on the wrong path. So let's read the message to the church in Pergamum. And after I read it, I want to explain what was happening there and how we can learn from them. So Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. And uh, these words were spoken by Jesus. All of the words in chapters 2 through 3 are spoken from Jesus. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. And let me just stop there for a moment. That sword reminds me of Hebrews 4.12 where it says, the, wording of the, the word of God is living and active and that it is sharper than any double-edged sword. So we get this picture of Jesus, and, and he has the sharp double-edged sword. Um, I want to continue on then. Verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. I'm going to put verses 12 and 13 up on the screen here. Uh, Pergamum, like the other six churches mentioned in Revelation 2 through 3, was located in the province of Asia, which is in modern-day Turkey. And although it was in Asia, it was a seat of the Roman government in Asia. So you can imagine that the people of Pergamum were pretty interested in making sure that they kept a, a really good relationship with Rome. That's very likely the reason that Antipas was killed. You see, in, in Rome, uh, it, might, it would displease the Roman authorities if somebody besides Caesar was worshipped. In fact, in Pergamum, they were one of the first places in Asia. They kind of led the way in constructing a temple for worshipping Caesar. So perhaps the reason why Antipas was killed was because he would not confess that, that Caesar is Lord, but demanded that Jesus is Lord. In verse 13, Antipas is called a faithful witness. Those are the exact same words used of Jesus to other places in the book of Revelation. So why was Antipas killed? I've, I've already told you one reason, but the real reason is something a little bit deeper, something that we touched on last Sunday. It, it, it said here in our passage twice that Satan was in Pergamum, that he had his throne there and that he lived there. Last Sunday they talked about people who said that they were Jews but were really a synagogue of Satan and that's where the persecution came from. And it looks like that's the same thing that's going on here in Pergamum. There was persecution on believers in Jesus Christ. But Antipas was a faithful witness and he was killed for it. And the others there, it, it, it says of them, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. 
So way to go, church in Pergamum. There were difficult times, and you remained true to the faith. Kind of. Some of them were. That, that's certainly the story for some of them, that they remained true to Jesus Christ, that they did not renounce their faith. But there was another group in the church of Pergamum that had drifted. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't know much about those Nicolaitans, except they were mentioned before in chapter 2, verse 6, and there it says that Jesus hated their practices. So, not, not a good group of people to be following. But we do know quite a bit about Balaam. You remember the story of Balaam in the Old Testament? A really interesting one. You might want to go and read it in Numbers, uh, like 21 through 25. It's the story of Balaam. That's the one where there was a tonky, talking donkey. Um, so Balaam was a prophet, and he was hired by Balak, who was a king of Moab. Now, that's a little bit confusing, but I have a simple way to help you remember it. Balak, with a K, was the king of Moab. So Moab was an enemy country to Israel, and Balak, their king, wanted to curse Israel, so he hired the prophet Balaam to come and to bring a curse on Israel. Now, the first time Balak sent for Balaam, Balaam said, hey, I can't curse them. If God has blessed them, I, I can't curse them. If God's not going to give me a message of cursing, I'm, how am I going to do it? So that's what he said the first time. The second time, uh, Balaam was talking to God in response and said, God, what should I do? And this time, God said, okay, since he's asked you twice, go ahead and do it, but, and this is repeated throughout the story of Balaam and Balak, only say what I'm going to tell you to say. So repeatedly throughout. So then Balaam, he, he agrees, he follows like what God has said. He goes, rides on his donkey, and three times the donkey wouldn't go towards Moab, and, and Balaam beats it. And then God finally lets the donkey speak. And the only time that we see uh, the donkey speaking, he's very reasonable. So if somebody calls you a donkey, you can thank them and say, yes, in the Bible, they're very reasonable, God-fearing animals. So... But then after the donkey talked to him, Balaam himself saw the angel and again warned Balaam, only say what God is going to tell you to say. When Balaam arrived in Moab then, he indeed gave three messages to Balak about Israel, but all three of them were blessings for the people of Israel. And, and it's interesting here. God's word would not curse his people who, who were walking by faith. So the deal is, how could, how could Balaam say anything that was really from God to be a curse when God was blessing those people? And, and Balak was frustrated, like, why did I do this? Don't say anything anymore. And, um, and then um, it says Balaam left. But right after Balaam left, the very next two verses, I want to put them on the screen for you. It's, it's strange. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. Wonder what happened there? Well, we're told six chapters later in chapter 31, verse 16, that the, the women seduced the Israelite men were acting on Balaam's advice. So do you see what happened here? 
Balaam got messages from God, but they were only blessing for Israel. So apparently Balaam figured out that he couldn't make any money by giving a message from God to the people because God would only bless them. But somehow, apparently in Balaam's mind, what happened was, hey, I've got another idea. Why don't we have your women seduce the men of Israel, and then they'll come over here and they'll start worshiping your gods. And that's exactly what happened. And God was so angry that he, he sent punishment on them, and a bunch of Israelites died that day because they joined in the sexual immorality and the idolatry of the Moabites. So what I want you to see from that story is that God's word would not lead the people to destruction. But sexual immorality and idolatry would, just like we see in Revelation 2.14 in our passage. The people of Israel compromised. Now we live in a nation that tempts us all the time to compromise. Think about how often we see around us these twin temptations of sexual immorality and idolatry. Now, I want to explain those two things without getting into too much graphic detail here. And I, I warned you on email that I would be doing this, so uh, I had a... Yeah, um, let me just talk about sexual immorality first. Those words, it's one word in Greek, it refers to anything that would be a distortion of God's intention for what should only happen within the bounds of marriage, one man and one woman. Now, that can happen either by unmarried people doing things that only married people should do, or it can happen by married people doing something to violate their covenant that they had made with each other. It can happen in a lot of different ways. It can be lust. It can be adultery. It can be thoughts. It can be actions. It can be in your home. It can be on the road. It can be in your mind. And then let me say this, too. The, the Greek word... Uh, that we see here, the verb is pornuo, the noun would be porneia, it's the word from which we get our word pornography. And it most certainly, the this, this sexual immorality most certainly includes things that you might look at that you should not be looking at. And, and let me just be very clear about that. There are things that you should not be looking at. Okay? Now, our culture says it's no problem. Our culture uh, values this kind of pornea, this kind of pornography, these kind of thoughts, these kind of actions. But we must not. It is not God's intention. And it's, it's not just secular America. It's the church, too. The statistics show that in the church, it's not much better. And, and i just like to say to this church, we should be a lot better than the secular nation around us. We should not put up with this kind of sexual immorality. Um, in 1 Peter 4.4, we're told that this world is surprised at us if we choose not to join with them in that kind of immorality. Well, let them be surprised. Okay? Let's shine as a light to them. Let's not choose that path. But let me say something positive now. In case you think that God is just trying to limit us with these restrictions, I think that's what we hear increasingly from non-Christians these days, is that, that God's rules are just to limit us, and why don't we express our freedom in other ways? You hear this a lot. Um, well, let me say two positive things. First, our marriages are supposed to be a representative of the relationship that God has with us. God has committed to his people in an eternal relationship. And our marriages are meant to 
to reflect that love that God has for us. So we are to commit to each other in a lifelong, one man, one woman relationship. And if we do, we will shine in this world as examples. As much as they might laugh at us for our beliefs or for things that we don't do, they will look at our marriages and applaud us if our marriages shine with the light of Christ. So let's do that. And then secondly, um, God's restrictions in this regard are in many ways for children. So that children will be brought up in a home with one mom and one dad in a loving environment. And uh, I've heard it said lately in the news, uh, there's one commentator especially who's saying that the biggest problem that we face in America today is the breakdown of the family. And And you trace so many of the problems that we're having in this nation, they go back to kids Uh, being born out of wedlock, being born without both a mother and a father in place. Now, of course, sometimes there's a tragedy and and one or two parents are taken away. Um, But in general, God's plan would be that kids are to be brought up with a mom and a dad who will teach them how to walk with Christ. So I think what we see then as as we, we look at God's plan for sex is that he has good plans for it. Our enemy would distort that But if we're going to fix our eyes on Christ and trust that his ways are best, what we'll see is that indeed his ways are best for us, for our family, for our country, for the world, if we would trust him. Okay. Um, Let me move on then to this other word, idolatry. Now, in our passage, don't misunderstand it, it's not the food that was the problem. The problem, what was going on in the people's hearts is they ate food that had been sacrificed to idols. They were joining in the worship of false idols uh, instead of worshiping God. Idolatry is the sin of worshiping something or someone besides God. And it's often been said that whatever our hearts or our minds go to that is not God, that can become an idol for us. And here, idolatry is linked with sexual immorality, and let me just say it this way. In America, I think that one of our idols is sexual immorality. You think about how much time and energy is spent on that, it has become an idol in our country. Our our country worships sexual immorality. Um, But there's another idol in America that I want to mention. The idol of self. If we were to have a motto in America, uh, it might be this. If you want it, go ahead and do it. I think that's what a lot of people would say the American dream is. If you want it, go ahead and do it. Now, some people might like to add this phrase at the end, as long as you're not hurting anyone. But idolatry always harms us. It harms our relationship with God, and it harms the people around us as, as we fail to live the lives that God wants for us by falling into idolatry. We are told repeatedly by our culture to do what we want to do. If you want it, go ahead and get it. Spend your time, your money, your energy, and go and get what you want. If we're spending that much time thinking about ourselves and acting for ourselves, what are we doing? Worshipping ourselves. Now that's a danger for us, even right here in Cornerstone Church. That, that we would spend so much of our time and energy on ourselves that what we end up doing is worshiping ourselves. May it never be. And remember, the power behind this is Satan. The theologian Michael Wilcox says, Satan is working here through the pressures of non-Christian society. 
So let's be honest with ourselves. There is temptation all around it. And you know why it's called temptation? Because it's tempting. And let's not assume that we are immune to it because we've shown up here on Sunday morning. Temptation is still tempting for us and we are to meet it in the power of the Holy Spirit, trusting that God has better plans for us. There are two paths and we are tempted to go on the wrong one. We know which one is right, but we will be tempted to go on the wrong one. The book of Proverbs says it's like playing with fire to think that we could try to do both of them. So if you ever catch yourself saying, I want to follow God, but I also want this, check your heart right there and go to God and do what it says to do in our very next verse, repent. Verse 16, repent therefore, otherwise I will come soon I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. In five of the seven churches in Revelation, the message was to repent. So often we stray, we drift away from the path. If we do, we should repent. Now to repent means to change both our mind and our actions. If we have turned our backs on God and have walked on the right path, what we should do is confess to God, tell Him we're sorry. Ask him to cleanse us, which he will, and ask for his strength to get on the right path. A pastor friend of mine said it this way, the best I've been able to do is to stray less often and to repent more quickly. So if you catch yourself straying from the path, repent quickly. And the good news here is that God forgives. Please remember that. We're talking about sin here today a fair amount, but please know that God forgives. He loves to forgive so much that he was pleased to send his, his son, Jesus Christ, to take our sin penalty upon himself. Now, sin is so very damaging to our relationship with God, but Jesus' blood is stronger. So when we come to God, when we throw ourselves at his mercy and ask for that cleansing, that forgiveness, he is pleased to give it to us and to restore us into a right relationship with him in which we can walk in the light, like it says in 1 John 1. So if you're on the wrong path, repent. God already knows where you are. He already knows all about your sin, okay? Please know that. That sin that you think that you've been hiding is not hidden. God knows all about it. Just talk to him about it and ask for his strength to be on the right path. You can't have it both ways. Either you worship God or you worship an idol. So by way of application, if there is any sexual immorality or idolatry in your life, flee from it. And, and I would hope that if there are any of you in here who have been on the wrong course, even this week, or you're planning something for this day or for this next week, or if you know that you're struggling with a consistent pattern of sin in your life, I would maybe hope that in your soul right now there's something stirring within you that knows it's not right. But you know what? You can do business with God right now and repent. You can, you can confess. The word confess means to agree with. It means that God has spoken a word about sin and that we shouldn't do it. For us to, to confess is to agree with him that our sin is sin and then we ask him to forgive. And he loves to forgive. He loves to restore so in your hearts, even right now, if there's anything that you need to repent of, whether that's sexual immorality or whether that's idolatry, maybe you've been spending too much time thinking about yourself or thinking about money or whatever else it might be, sports maybe. If there's any of that going on in your heart right now, repent. 
Ask God to show you what's going on there. Throw yourself on God's mercy. And be serious about your repentance. I love this verse from James 4.8. First it's an invitation. Come near to God and he will come near to you. But then it gets a little harsh. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Let's hate our sins so much that we flee from it. That we repent. Then in verse 17 it says that we are to overcome. Now, as I've said before in this, in this series, because overcoming comes up in all seven churches, we can't overcome in our own power. We can only overcome in the power of the one who has already overcome, Jesus Christ, who by his death and resurrection showed his victory over sin and death and Satan. So if any of you are living a life right now and it feels a little bit weak, feels a little bit like, boy, it's not going so well when I do it my way, the message for you might very well be overcome, and you can only do that in Christ. So give your heart fully to him. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. He'll not only show you how to walk, but in him you will overcome. And if we overcome, we get some of the hidden manna. Manna, remember, was God's provision for the Israelites for those 40 years that they wandered around the desert? Well, God has something new for us in heaven, some hidden manna. It sounds really good to me. I wonder if it tastes even better than Mountain Dew. Like just, you know, I believe that God can do miracles, so it's possible. That, uh, and then also, if we overcome, we will get a, a white stone with a new name written on it. Now, if you're keeping track at home, this is another place in the book of Revelation where I don't know what this means. Uh, I read one theologian who said that there have been 12 plausible suggestions for what this, this white stone can mean. I don't know what it means, but I'm kind of excited to find out. It does say that there will be a new name on it, and theologians disagree. Is that going to be a new name for us or a new name for God? I kind of think that this one is for us because elsewhere in Revelation it talks about Jesus having a new name written on him. So I wonder if this this white stone maybe will be a new name for us, or it could be just that we'll we'll have a a name of God written on it. Either way, I don't know, but it sounds pretty cool, and I want to see it. So, okay. So far what we've done is I've kind of told you that there are two paths, and we've spent a lot of our time today looking at the wrong path. And I've just kind of intentionally glossed over one very powerful force that will help us to be on the right path. And I want to turn my attention to that now. God's Word. So we get on the wrong path and we get our own ideas about how we should live life, but God's Word will help us be on the right path. So let's think about that. Remember Balaam. He was first asked to curse the, to curse God's people. But God would not give him a curse word to say to them. God's word wouldn't do that. And then look at verse 12 in our passage today. I, I mentioned there just very quickly that sharp double-edged sword. Reminds me again of the, the sharp double-edged sword in Hebrews 4.12, which is able to cut to our heart. It's living and active. God's word is so very powerful. Think about God's word for a moment. How did the universe come into existence? God's Spoke it. What's another name for Jesus? The Word. Jesus himself prayed that we would be made holy by God's Word. It is a powerful, powerful force in our lives. Oftentimes we Christians just kind of overlook it. Or you bring your Bible to church on Sunday and put it on your shelf for the rest of the week. Let's not treat it like that. Let's, let's understand that God's Word is living and active. It can deeply and positively change our lives if we would submit to God by meeting with him in it. 
If the lure of sexual immorality and idolatry is powerful, please know that it is not more powerful than the word of God. We are not doomed to follow a wicked path. Not if we humbly submit to God's word, because it can change us. Although God does warn us that if we, if we don't repent of our sins, that uh, his enemies will face the wrath of his sword. So here's one way I like to think about God's word. Either we will submit to it, or we will be judged by it. So think about that. God's word is a sword. Would you rather have it performing surgery on your heart or coming against you in wrath? There is power in God's word. Let's submit to it. And then here's another way I like to think of God's word. We should feast on it. We're told about the manna here. Uh, Jesus was talking about himself in John 6, that passage where he compared himself to manna. And in verse 51 there, he said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. We were in adult Sunday school a few weeks ago, and we were talking about this idea of, of Jesus being food. And somebody said, if Jesus is food, I want to eat him. If he's a book, I want to read him. That should be our heart's desire that whatever Jesus has for us, that we would fully take it in. That we would recognize that Jesus Christ is our life and we can meet with him in the word of God and we can be strengthened and sustained. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years, but they died. If we feast on Jesus, we will live forever. And remember, Jesus is the word. Okay, so kind of concluding now. Our passage in the middle of it has some awful things to say about sexual immorality and idolatry. But it's actually not the harshest language. In Revelation, at the end of the book, the last two chapters, it talks about how the sexually immoral and the idolaters will be outside. Not inside with God, but outside. And in another place, it says that their place will be in the fiery lake. That path leads away from God. Please don't assume that you can walk it and not get burned. The force behind those is none other than Satan himself. But there is a more powerful force, God himself, and he has given us his word, which leads us on the right path. So the middle of our passage warns us about sexual immorality and idolatry, but in the beginning and the end of our passage, we see these pictures of God's word. We see this picture of Jesus with a sharp, double-edged sword. We see this, this picture of manna, which we're reminded that Jesus is our food, and we can feast on him. God's word shows us how to live. Yet if we're honest with ourselves, we often have our own ideas about how we should live. So what do we do if you're recognizing today that you're maybe tempted to that path or even walking on that path? What do you do? Repent. Very simple. It's a message to five of the seven churches, a message that if we're following the math, then we should be very ready to accept that we might need to listen to that message of repenting. And if so, just submit yourself to God. Commit to knowing him and walking with him and fleeing from your sin. Commit to God's word. Oftentimes I've gotten up in front of you all here and said, I want you to be committed to God's word. And I'm going to do it again here today because I want you to remember that God's word leads us on the right path. But it's not just simply about opening the book and reading the words. It's about meeting with God as we read. It's about our hearts submitting to him. It's about the Holy Spirit who authored the word and who lives in us, speaking to us, convicting us of our sin, guiding us into truth. Are you actively doing that? 
Uh, just this week, I listened to uh, an old sermon from George that he preached about uh, five years ago. And he was, he, do you remember this one, George? You gave a survey where you, you asked the people of Cornerstone how we were doing at reading God's Word. And um, of all the people that did the survey, they all said at least once a week they were reading God's Word. And there were, there were a decent percentage that were seven times a week. Uh, but then everywhere in the middle, there were, there were some people that fell in there. And I just want to encourage you to think about how you're doing with God's Word, and, and not that you would just put it on your checklist and say, yep, I did that today, but that we would consistently, as a pattern of our lives, show God that we're so willing to submit to Him that we would regularly spend time with Him reading His Word, submitting to Him. Our response to what God has given us in his word should be gratitude. We should be so thankful that he gave us his word. Our response should be worship as we meet with him. Uh, and like Dan was saying, not just reading it, but agreeing in our hearts with what we read. Our response should be that we make time to embrace his word. We make times in life for what's important to us. We really do. Is God's word important to you? I hope it is. God has good plans for us, and he wants to lead us on the right path. It's so easy for us to stray or to drift away, but let us remain faithful. Let us walk with God on the path that he has for us. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for revealing these things to us. And it's, it's in very stark terms here. Uh, we see things that our nation struggles with and that we are tempted to struggle with. God, we pray that if there is any sexual immorality or idolatry in any of us, that we would repent. And God, I pray that we would not just simply turn away from our sins, but that we would turn towards you, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, that we would submit to you, and specifically, God, that we would be a people who get to know you in your word. I pray that we would be committed to worshiping you, to following you as revealed in your word. Thank you for giving it to us. God, we thank you that you love us so much that you sent Jesus for us and that you lead us even now. God, may we follow you. And again, we pray for the strength of the Holy Spirit, the strengthening in our hearts, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. We pray that, God. We pray that we would know your love that surpasses knowledge that we might be full, filled to the fullness of all the measure of you, God, as it says in your word. God, we love you. We want to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.